Hi, everybody. Hey, everybody. Good afternoon on this beautiful Monday. Yes, the temperature's back up. Yes. You know, we, we got home yesterday, wait, Saturday, and it was pretty cold when we got it off was. that airplane. But it now it's warm and sunny and it's great. It's great beautiful. to have everybody here. Yeah, nice weather for a few days, too. I appreciate Donna Reeves letting me know that the mic was on earlier. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> you never know what I may swing by this office yeah, and say, not yeah. knowing it's on. It wouldn't be too bad, but it might be embarrassing. I was having some technical problems earlier, getting everything all set up. And, and in wrestling that down, I just kind of didn't notice that the mic was actually not muted. But, hey, we're all set now. We are. That's really good. We're all good to right, go. Right, Patty? Yes. So what's new? A lot's new. Um, the big news, we just, I was asked to remind everybody again um, today of the events happening this week. I was up at St. Andrew for a meeting this morning. And please do not forget, tomorrow is the day that you need to go and cast your vote at St. Andrew regarding the disaffiliation. And hopefully, Arthur, I asked him yesterday, how soon will we know? And he said, hopefully in 10 minutes after it's done. Or two minutes. Or two minutes. So this isn't going to be something that we're all waiting around for. Um, Arthur is hoping that we're all in and out of there by 6.30. Um, if you could arrive a little earlier, it would be good. From what I understand, there is a name tag for every person who's an active member of the church. Yes, the doors are going to be registered. You know, check-in is going to start at 5 o'clock. And because there's going to be a lot of people that need to get, because you need to get 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 checked in, get your name get tag, because it's only for members. If you're not a member, there's just no point in coming. Right. So it's only for members, and um, check-ins from five to six, and the meeting starts at six. And bring a cell phone. Now, and they've said to us, it's going to be very simple and straightforward to vote. If you have, if let's just say your cell phone's broken and you don't have one, they're going to have iPads there and on which you can register your vote. Yes. It's okay. going to be one question. Yes or no? no. Yes. <laughs> We're hoping everybody votes yes. Yes, yes. And um, yes, yeah, so if you have a, a flip phone or something that's not, don't worry. And there are going to be people that will show you exactly what you have to do. Um, I am not a tech person at all Scott can tell you, <laughs> but um, it'll be very, very easy to do. They're going to explain it, and you'll two seconds you've taken your vote. The meeting isn't going to take all the way till 6 30. Probably it, not, it's gonna you be, know, because there's really yes. just one question is that's to be called to order, and then we'll vote. And that will be, you know, let's see how long that little process right. takes. Hopefully, it won't take long at all. That's right, so simple. And the other thing is, um, because tomorrow night we have this um, special meeting probably a once-in-a-lifetime meeting for St. Andrew. Um, normally, the day before Ash Wednesday, we have the big pancake night, the Shrove Tuesday. Shrove Tuesday is becoming Shrove Wednesday slash Ash Wednesday. Yes. So you could come up that night. Um, you probably have to check the time. I'm sure it's like 5, I don't know. 5 30, 6 o'clock for a pancake dinner. And then we have the Ash Wednesday service. So it's it's, it's a busy place right now, St. Andrew. It is it indeed. Is. It yep. is indeed. Yep. But we're here now for the yes. next... Oh, and I'm going to do one more shameless yep. plug. Also, y'all, um, you know that I am really involved in the Second Act Ministry. And one of my events is coming up this Saturday. And it's the Legacy Book. And this is the book where you can... Um, you'll be given the book. The book has... Uh, like a notebook. It will have chapters and tabs and 
all kinds of space for you to write down the most important thing that if something should happen to you, that somebody would know what your wishes were, maybe your passwords, your anything that you would want, either a spouse or a child or a caregiver, somebody to know um, about you and it just in you know in case you had an injury where you couldn't speak or whatever. Um, some people call it a love book or a survivor's guide or whatever. Um, but it is this Saturday and it is going to be um, in Piro Hall. We have a good group already signed up. There is openings for a few more, but you have to sign up like ASAP on Realm in the Second Act Ministry. And again, it's called the Legacy Book because you have to have a book. And we are gathering at the church and we are compiling all these books this week. And we, we want to be sure that everybody who shows up and wanted one, um, that's it. So, that's okay. It. Okay. Busy days. Yes. Yes. Busy days. Busy church. Record attendance all over the church. It's just a very exciting place to be right now. It is. It really the is. The spirit is strong. Yes. At St. Andrew. Yes. So. Yes. So, okay. Well, I think with all that, maybe I should... Get us started. What do you think? I think with the that's prayer? great. With get right back into Hosea. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today on this beautiful Monday. We missed it last week, but we are back here today to resume our journey through Hosea. And we pray as we do every time we gather that your spirit would move among us and not only hold us close together, but um, open our hearts and our minds to you and open the pages of scripture that we so that we can we can make some sense of Hosea and so we, we can hear in Hosea a message across the centuries even for us in here in North Texas in 2023 all this we pray in Jesus's name amen amen righty gonna scoot back over okay very good so let's see I thought we should do, since we weren't able to be together last week, we should just do a quick review, just just kind of freshen ourselves up a bit. So, um, Hosea comes from a time more than 700 years before Jesus. Okay, it comes from the time before the Assyrians overwhelm the northern kingdom of Israel and, and sweep it away. And the ten tribes that comprise the northern kingdom are thereby lost. They become the ten lost tribes of Israel. And Hosea is a prophet called by God to work in the northern kingdom. And as I said a few weeks ago, the northern kingdom is the kingdom that has, that has the biggest problems. They have one unfaithful king after another, one king after another who leads the people astray. And so this is a series of stories and sermons try, in which we really get to see this balancing of God's love and God's righteous wrath played out against each other. So just um, for Steve Wilson, here is the map again. The green is the northern kingdom, the of Israel, um, comprised of ten tribes, and the southern, and the red at the bottom, the orangey red, is the tribe of Judah, comprised principally the tribe of Judah, also the tribe of Benjamin, but they're so tiny they hardly even count, and it's that northern kingdom of the green that is swept away, overrun 
by the Assyrians in 722, okay? Um, and there we have the Jezreel uh, Valley, um, which has been in view in part of this book. And that's probably about enough little reminder about what we're doing here. So we were in chapter 2 when we finished up two weeks ago. And chapter 2 of Hosea is one to earmark, one to remember, because at the beginning of the chapter, God is laying out his case against Israel in a very colorful, metaphorical fashion. Because if you recall, um, if you go back and look at the very first verse in Hosea, I'm going to read it from the NRSV because I think it's a little bit better. This is actually chapter 1, verse 2. Okay? When Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom, a prostitute, and have children of whoredom. These would be the children of her prostituting, her customers, right? You for, are not in NIV, are you? Uh, no, I said I was going to read from I'm the sorry. NRSV. I'm sorry. sorry I'm sorry. That. A wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by breaking for forsaking the Lord. So I wanted to read it from the NRSV because there's this direct, the way the, the book of Hosea works is that Hosea's life here in the first part of the book parallels the life of Israel with God. And God tells Israel that you have been chasing after other gods. You have been adulterous. Um, You've been prostituting yourself um, to other gods and goddesses, Baal, Astarte, and other ones who were the local Canaanite gods and goddesses. And so to enact this story, God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute. And in the NRSV, uses the word whoredom three times in one verse because that's what happens in the Hebrew. It, it just drives home the tie-in between Hosea and Gomer and Hosea and Gomer's children and God and um, and and the Israelites. So you see the parallels. He tells the story of the story of Hosea is an enacted parable, an enacted prophecy in which um, the pain that Hosea will feel about being betrayed is the pain that God feels about being betrayed. Now, coming out of a patriarchal culture, this is all told where it's the, it's the woman who is the unfaithful one. The woman is the, the prostitute, promiscuous, unfaithful, whatever you want to call it, adulterous. But of course, we know that those roles could could actually be reversed, and it would be the 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 man, the husband, who is is the betrayer. Um, but that isn't how this metaphor works. The way the metaphor works is that Hosea is the husband 
Gomer is the wife, and she is the betrayer, just as God is the husband, Israel is God's bride, and Israel is the one who is unfaithful. Okay? And it's that larger metaphor about God and Israel that you need to see. That you need to see. And Susan says, then you're explaining why, which makes more sense. <laughs> about marrying the prostitute. She always wondered why. Why what, honey? Well, her line before that, she said it has always intrigued her that God directed Hosea to marry a prostitute. But you're explaining it, which now yes. makes sense to her. Yes. So the whole thing, the whole package <laughs> is about Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And how does God do that? God does it within the context of a, of a human marriage between husband and wife and adultery, and betrayal, right? And I think it's very poignant because it, it's written in a way with a lot of emotion. And that emotion is something that God feels toward Israel. God has been betrayed by Israel. They made a covenant they made a covenant. They made a promise. It's like a marriage vow. They made a marriage vow at the foot of Mount Sinai with Moses. They made a marriage vow to, to be true to God, to have no other gods before Yahweh, to, to keep God's name holy and the rest of it. And they betrayed that. They betrayed that. And if you have ever been betrayed... And anything approaching something like that, you know what I'm talking about. It's like the worst of the worst of the worst. And I think you should not approach this imagining that God doesn't have emotion. Um, I remember long ago we were teaching a Sunday school class and one of the guys, it was a single Sunday school class. This is before I was even on staff at St. Andrew. And and one of the one of the fellows said, Well, obviously God doesn't have emotion. And I said, I don't agree with that. Having emotion doesn't make you doesn't make God less God. Having emotion doesn't make God less perfect. Does, having emotion doesn't make God less powerful. Having emotion is an expression of the feelings of caring that go with committed love. Right? When you love someone, you're running the risk of betrayal. You're running the risk of disappointment. You're running the risk of hurt and pain. And it, that doesn't diminish God. Um, not in the least. So it's just such a remarkable way that God does this through Hosea. And I'm so glad that Susan recommended this book because I, you know, Hosea 2 is just one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. So we saw, we saw, we saw it last two weeks ago. I do, I'm not going to go all the way through chapter 2. We're going to get into the section, the first part, which is where God is so angry at his people, right? And talking about, you know, what that means, what God is going to do to them. 
So go to the second chapter and scoot on down. We'll scoot all the way down. Um, scoot on down to verse 9. It's as good a place to start as any. In the NIV, yes, I put away my NRSV over here. My beloved little NRSV just over here by my left hand. I have the NIV out now. So, essentially, this is about what? Israel's punishment for being faithless. They were supposed to be faithful, but they have been faithless. And God says, therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I'll take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. Right? So it's the metaphor, it's, 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 Gomer and Hosea, but our eyes need to be on the larger metaphor of God and Israel. So I, so now I will explode, expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. See, that can be read. God is relentless in his pursuit of his people. Relentless. There are a thousand opportunities. A thousand times when you expect God to walk away. I'm, just stop and go back to the book of Genesis. When things have gotten so bad, after the story after Adam and Eve, that in chapter 6, when the, he, when the writer says, ah, it's just evil, evil everywhere, from morning to night, evil, 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 you wonder why God just doesn't walk away. And go start again. Go try again. But God created this world and created these people whom God could love and who would love God. So God is not going to let the people, not going to let Israel be taken out of God's hands. God is on this plan. It's a plan that will come to its fruition because of one faithful Jew named Jesus. Verse 11. I will stop all of her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons. Those are both, especially the new moon is, is can be taken as a reference to pagan festivals. Her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers, Baal and Astarte and Asherah. This is why, and when you come to the Bible, you have to be good with metaphors, analogies. Um, a metaphor is a type of an analogy, and it is the way that we learn almost everything. And when you come to speak of God, we can't really speak of God directly. All we can do is speak of God using analogies and metaphors and understand that whatever metaphor we're using is going to be limited in ways God is not. We might think we know what goodness is, but all we can do is really look at our lives and our world to try to understand what goodness is. And so we use that language to speak about God but it's limited, and we always have to remember that. 
So, of course, the Bible is filled with metaphor from beginning to end. Verse 12, um, verse 12, I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals, the pagan gods, and she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, these pagan gods, but me she forgot, declares Yahweh. They forgot, they forgot God. They forgot the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is, this is the great sin of the kings of the northern kingdom. They lead the Israelites away to all these pagan gods and goddesses and erect temples and, and altars and totem poles called Asherah poles because the goddess, goddess is named Asherah to these pagan gods and goddesses. Um, the most infamous, one of the most infamous characters in the Old Testament is Jezebel. She comes from way up north on the coast and she brings down, you know, this pagan worship. And it's, it, 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 it's just terrible. And they have forgot, you know, she, but, but me, she forgot, declares Yahweh. Wow. And so then you're waiting for the what? For the <laughs> shoot a drop, right? You're expecting this to go on and with promises of really more terrible things are going to fall on Israel. But now you're going to meet the heart of God, beginning in the next verse. Therefore, right, and you're waiting, oh my gosh, this is going to be bad. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, like new love, right? In the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt, right? In Egypt at Mount Sinai, they had made this covenant and it was all the people said, yes, 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 we're ready, let's go, let's go. As when she came up out of Egypt, in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. Wow. Now, this isn't a patriarchal culture from how long ago? More than 2,700 years ago. And Israel the bride is no longer to call Israel's husband master. Wow. I mean, it's just, it. you begin to get glimpses of a relationship put right and a world renewed and the rest that emerges here. There are many anti, I'll call them, anti-Christian writers who insist upon coming to the Bible and focusing on what they think is the God of the Old Testament and the smiting and the wrath and the blood and God is filled with anger in contrast to Jesus. And they don't know 
what they're talking about, and they don't know their Bibles very well. And here we are, right here in the middle of Hosea, in the second chapter, and what do we have? We have this image of God reaching out, alluring Israel back. Oh, they've been faithless, 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 adulterous. They've been, they've betrayed God time and time again in the most terrible ways. In the most terrible ways. And you will call me my husband, you'll no longer call me my master. Doesn't that say a lot? Yes, it does. It really does. Just sort of theologically, what sort of relationship does God want with us? Does God want to... Master sounds to me like something you have to, you you know what I mean? You're, you have to listen to this person or you have to follow this person. It's... Which is... Husband sounds like it's more of a two-way street to me, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And of course, all husbands are flawed and make a lot of bad choices. Right, honey? Not true. Yeah, it is true. Um, well, same, same is true of wives. But that is true of God. That's so we definitely are, not true. <laughs> we are called to be obedient to God because God does know what is right and God does know what is best. But God desires a relationship of closeness a relationship that has been put right you could what i would do with this if you want to connect a dot go back to genesis chapter three when they have eaten the fruit and it says that god came to walk with them in the evening and i always picture god coming to walk with them now god doesn't have a body it's again it's a metaphor god can't actually put God's feet on the ground and walk with somebody. But it's it's a metaphor for intimacy that God has with, with Adam and now Eve. An intimacy that they wreck when they make the wrong choice rather than trusting God. They decide that they want to be like God themselves. You will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals, those pagan god and goddesses from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them. Notice, in that day, I will make a covenant for them. Not with them. They have a covenant with God. That was entered into at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, they made a covenant to which God has been faithful, but they have not. On that day, will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the fields, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. What we call nature is, is wrapped up in all of this. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow, lies like archery, bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety, 
so you could go to sleep at night with your doors unlocked. No more war, no more tanks, no more, no more guns, no more any of that. It's one of the wonderful things about the prophets is they bring these images. Some of them are quite big and extensive, and other ones are like Hosea's. They're smaller, and but in in that they don't go on as long. But there's they're powerful images of a world put right. The world as God intends it to be. The world as God will make it to be. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. To be betrothed to someone is to be bound to them, right? I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, the doing of right and justice, the doing of justice in love and in compassion. That's how we're to be bound to God. That's what it means to be bound to God. Um, when God's kingdom is made fully manifest and the new earth and the new heavens have arrived and the bow and the sword and battle have been abolished from the land, that's what our existence will be bound to God forever in righteousness and in justice, in love and in compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge Yahweh. Verse 21, In that day I will respond, declares Yahweh. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. Jezreel is that valley that had the beautiful valley I, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's, just, it's, it's lovely, but it had been the site of so much fighting. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Now that last bit is about what do you think? It's about those children's names. So let me pull up this slide. Lo Ruhama is no compassion, but now there will be compassion, there will be mercy, there will be loved ones, and no, and lo, Ami is not my people. That was the third child back in chapter one. And God says, I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Um, I guess what I want you to take away from chapter 2 is the is the, 
the turn that happens, whoops, Scott, okay, between verses 13 and 14. The turn, even with the therefore, because if you've, if some of you have been in my classes for a long time, always pay attention to the therefores. Therefore. So all this, you know, negative, bad stuff that's going to happen to them and the anger and so forth and the people forgetting even God, therefore, and you think the hammer's going to fall, but no, therefore, I am now going to allure her. That's God's way. God is relentlessly after these people, constantly pouring grace out, pouring mercies out on people who don't, they don't deserve it, but God loves them. God loves them. It's, it's that, it's, I don't think it's more complicated than that. God loves them. As Simon Chan, a theologian, put it, God made the world in order to make the church, in order to make a people whom God could love and who would love God. That's the point of the whole thing, the whole story. So if you get that, that God made the world in order to make the church so that God could have a people whom God could love and who would love God, then you understand, well, why when the lawyer asked Jesus, so what are the two great commandments? He immediately grabs one from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's why that... The, those aren't sentiments. Those are expressions of, of who God is, culminating in 1 John when five times John writes, God is love. And how could God be loved? Because God is triune. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Son loves the Spirit, and on we go. Otherwise, it's just a bumper sticker because love Love requires a lover and a beloved, right? A lover and a beloved. And in the triune God, those relationships are all there. So yes, God is love. So it is, as Susan put it, it's the, the, the love is, you see the unconditionality of the love being poured out by God in his relentless pursuit of his people. Now, let's talk about one thing here. The covenant made that the people enter into at Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments and the rest, right? Okay? That is not unconditional. That is a conditional covenant that they make at Mount Sinai. If we were to go back to Exodus, we could see that, you know, God says, okay, well, here are, you know, these Ten Commandments are laid out and then the rest begins to be laid out and, and three times Moses says to the people, are, okay, are you signing on for this? Are you signing on? Are you signing on? And the people say, yes, 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 we're on. We're good. It's, but it's, it's contingent upon Israel's faithfulness for the, for the promises to come, for the blessings to flow, it doesn't just take a faithful God, it takes a faithful people. So what is the story of the Old Testament? <laughs> that the people are not faithful. So God is relentlessly pursuing, I'll, I'll use some hand signals here. God is relentlessly pursuing them, right? Because God loves them unconditionally. 
But the covenant, the covenant is not fulfilled because they remain a faithless people. Despite God's pursuit of them. Right? Because there's a darkness in the human heart. So that presents God with this huge, enormous problem. It, it, it's like, oh gosh, I don't think I've ever used, I don't know that I should even, what popped into my head was Ms. Pac-Man. <laughs> so God is relentlessly pursuing his people like Ms. Pac-Man, that little round thing in, in, the, in the game. <laughs> but in a sense, God doesn't catch them in the way God wants to because they are faithless. And they keep running away. And so God keeps coming after them, and they keep running away. So what's going to have to happen? Well, what's going to have to happen is that God will provide a Jew who is utterly faithful to that covenant, utterly faithful to the covenant made at Mount Sinai, thereby, enabling those promises to be kept. One faithful Jew who represents all of Israel, a remnant of one, a remnant of one faithful Jew, is all it takes, one faithful Jew, and that, and his name is Jesus. So, just sort of file away, because I see what Susan typed there. Um, yeah, my hand signals look like Pac-Man, exactly. So the unconditional love of God does not mean that the covenant is unconditional. The, it's called the Mosaic Covenant, because it was, you know, from the time of Moses. But it, it that is not unconditional. That is a conditional covenant. Different than the covenant, um, which is really a promise that God makes to Abraham. God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than the stars and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. But he doesn't ask anything of Abraham. That's just a promise. That is not what happens at Mount Sinai. We're about to do a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew looks back to Mount Sinai. Okay? They are just like a big red line connecting those two things together. The, the, the story of Mount Sinai and, and the covenant there and the Sermon on the Mount. So um, what I'd like to do is just, because I often refer to it, but I don't ever have people look at it. Go to the book of Romans and go to chapter 8. So, iPad or not, we'll go to maybe 8, verse 6. I don't know the verse. In... Oh, man. Here we go. Actually, it's all the way down to verse 22. <laughs> maybe 21. Maybe verse 18. <laughs> verse 18, that's it, yes. Romans 8, verse 18, yay. Oh, man, 
I need to, I need cue cards here. You book and and chapter, you were doing just great. I need cue cards or a teleprompter. A teleprompter. <laughs> we need but, backup, right? <laughs> we need backup. Okay, I'm gonna swallow here of water. Okay. This is we'll we'll just we'll just read it together. This is Paul in his great letter to the Christians in Rome. In verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. They suffer now, but boy, there are big things to come, right? Um, I was talking with Lauren today, and you know, her grandfather died last week, and she preached the, the, the funeral, and she had absolutely the right understanding and view of this, that she is going to miss her grandfather, but her grandfather is now with Christ. And really, what could be better than that? And they will be reunited. And what could be better than that? So we Christians, we can worry about little things day to day, but the big worry about who we are or our end or whatever, might those are not worries we have. We have hope, not worry. Not the big worry. Anxieties over all kinds of things day to day, but not the big worry, because we know how the story. We know where the story goes. Verse nineteen: For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, creation itself is waiting for this time of renewal and restoration that Hosea, right, promises that God promises through Hosea. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation will be, itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So he's just going here about the fact that all creation is wrapped up in this story of salvation. It's why the rocks and the trees sing when Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday. Because all creation, this is, this is, it's, it's such a, it's just so big. All creation groans awaiting its own redemption, right? For these promises to be, to be fulfilled. So go back to Hosea chapter two. I just wanted to do that because it, here in Hosea chapter 2, <coughs> the words God gives Hosea to bring to the people are words that incorporate verse 21, I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil. Wow. And at the end, I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. 
just powerful. It's a wonderful chapter to know about. And many Christians don't. The pages of Hosea are still glued together in too many Bibles. Okay, so before we go on to chapter 3, anybody got anything? Patty, you got anything nope. you want to talk about? Don't have any questions right no? now. No? No, you got any questions, Patty? No. 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 Okay. Okay, so now we're going to go back to Hosea and Gomer. And it's kind of a repeat, but there's a few things that are a little different and a few things that will make you scratch your head, and we'll, and we'll talk about them. Okay. So Yahweh said to me, the me is Hosea, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now, if we were to go back and look at chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Go and take a wife. So that's one shift. Now it's going to go and find this woman to love. Because you see, hmm, what does God do, honey? God loves. He does. God loves, so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Yes, and go, he forgives. <laughs> yeah, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, that betrayal. Love her as Yahweh loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. <laughs> you know, when you read these writings from thousands of years ago, you come upon these spots that just, what? Though they turn to other gods, fine, and love the sacred raisin cakes. Wow. You know, when we were in Holland, America last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, Tell them, Patty. Holland America makes a signature bun every morning. Well, they make tons and tons. I can't even imagine what the kitchen is like to bake all this stuff. But every morning they bake the most delicious raisin buns. And they are almost sacred. <laughs> yeah, they are really good. A little butter on them, you know, and stuff. They are they are quite good. They No sugar. No sugars <laughs> on them. It's just It isn't yeah. that God doesn't like raisins or cakes. Or raisin cakes. What well, these are, obviously, really, just from the context, you sort of get it. Because yes. um, I don't think in the Hebrew there's actually the word sacred there. It just says raisin cakes. But from the context, you get it that these are some kind of special offering or food associated with the worship of a pagan god. Not more complicated right. than that. Yes. That's all it is. It's these, it's these pagan practices brought into Israel by um, foreign, by, by people, by kings and queens and the rest. You know, in the book of Kings, we get the story of Solomon. Yes. And Solomon has a thousand, he has 300 wives and 700 concubines, or the reverse. It's a thousand. And it says most of them are foreign. And they bring their pagan gods and goddesses into Israel. And if you read it slowly, so you really read each word and each line to let it fall on you a bit, you realize this is when the decline of Israel 
begins after the after the time of David. This, you know, because Israel is at like at a zenith of power and wealth and all the rest of its stuff under Solomon. But with the importation of pagan gods and goddesses and pagan practices and pagan prayers and the rest of it, the decline of Israel is set in motion. Because what are God's people supposed to be above all else? Faithful to God. Everything else is secondary. Oh, sure, I guess it's fine to be rich, I guess. I don't know, it depends. Not if it takes you away from God, it's not. We are to be faithful to God, first and foremost. So Josie says her little... Uh her Bible tells us that those little cakes were shaped like the fertility goddess. Well, that's not what we had. <laughs> now, the, the Holland America buns are not, are not that. But see, but Joe, if you go to museums and you look at the all the little figurines, you know, because yes. these pagan deities, the icons, come in all shapes and sizes. So there are a lot of little ones, are, and many of them around fertility. Yes. Right? Because... That's the most miraculous thing that people do. We don't think about it. No, right? Yeah. We especially now, see that in Ephesus. Yeah. It's everywhere. And now, of course, now, you know, we cheapen it. Cheapens hardly enough, strong enough for it. We cheapen it with abortion. We don't eat, we don't appreciate that, that this is the most amazing thing that a humans can do. I don't care about landing on the moon. You're participating in creation. You, 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 we're giving birth to more, to more humans, and so the fertility, you know, God, little figurines are all over the place, all kinds of them, all kinds of them. So yeah, I buy it, Josie. Why not? Raising cakes is fertility. So then, in verse two. <laughs> Yeah, terracotta cake molds unearthed in Cyrus, Cyprus. Sure, I mean, you know, there's, yeah, that's awesome. So I bought for her, I bought, so Hosea says, so it says, I bought for her, for Gomer, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. So there's some silver and then there's some stuff, some weights of <laughs> barley. Bought her from whom? Ah, well, nobody agrees about the answer to that question. In chapter 2, so much is taken away from Gomer in the like literal sense of two, chapter 2 that it makes some wonder, well, is he giving this to her? as recompense for what he took. I don't know. Is it going to her father? We, his name is what? The emblem or something like that. I don't know. It's just one of those... Or the other man she's now with. Right? Well... Didn't he say, well, she's mine now? Well, I just said, you. though she is loved by another man, doesn't mean that the man like owns her like you'd have to pay her. Um, it's just, it's just not something we're going to get a satisfactory answer to. Even if you have stuff on your study Bible, um, 
the study Bible notes should be humble about this one because I was reading about it. So, but they, it, it's like a renewal, like what? It's like a renewal of this whole project that began in chapter one with Hosea and Gomer. And God wants Hosea to experience what God has experienced. And Hosea says, well, then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. That is basically, right, one of the early commandments at Mount Sinai. You will have no other gods before me. This, this, is, this is a marriage covenant. You know, when you, if you take the Bible sort of from beginning to end, you understand why, how important marriage is in the Judeo-Christian world. Has always been. And I know it's under a lot of pressure now. There's a lot of contention about it. And a lot of people don't care about it anymore. A lot of people don't want to bother with it. But in the Judeo-Christian context, it's, it's very important, far more so than I ever understood. Because I, I, I didn't know my Bible well when I was a young, younger man. They are to be faithful to each other. Homer and <laughs> Hosea and Gomer, not Homer. Hosea and Gomer are to be faithful to each other. Just as God and the Israelites are to be faithful to each other, they pledged, pledged themselves to each other at Mount Sinai. You see? There we go. Again. Verse 4. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, earthly, human, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. They will come trembling to Yahweh and to his blessings in the last days. As if to say there are rough times ahead and this covenant that we have entered into should enable us to ride out the storms ahead until we come to the blessings in the last days. And that's all of chapter 3 right there. It's only like, what, five verses long. I'm not even sure why there's a new, there's a chapter division there. But So in chapters 1, 2, and 3 are built around... <coughs> the story of Hosea and Gomer. And God has Hosea enact this prophecy himself with this woman named Gomer as a way to speak of God's relationship and experience with the Israelites. Okay? And even in chapter 2, you have the balancing in the first part of chapter 2, God's wrath, righteous wrath, over the unfaithfulness of God's people, of the Israelites. And in the second part of chapter 2, 
you come to the relentless, relentless love of God in pursuit of these people. And how those two play out all the time going forward creates a lot of dynamics um, in the in the story of Israel. So, okay. All right. So, you got anything, Patty? Anybody got anything you want to talk about? No. Quiet group. <clears throat> okay. Hosea chapter 4. There we go. Because, and now we're going to have be in a different section. So, this is going to read much more like when we did Isaiah. Okay? And that these are longer passages of, they're called oracles. O-R-A-C-L-E-S. Oracles that are brought to the people from God through the prophet. And, as you would expect, there is much in the way of accusation. The people, the prophet comes calling the people back to God. That's the principal thing they do. A prophet is someone who tells forth God's word, and in the 8th century BC, in the kingdom of Israel, that word is, come back to God, come back to God, come back to God, or you are driving off that cliff just like Thelma and Louise. And so it's a call to regret what you have done, which is called contrition, and to repent, which is to embrace a new way. And it's hard to hear the truth sometimes from people. But in my experience, the people who care about me the most are the ones who have been most willing to tell me the truth when it hurts, when I don't want to hear it. And, and it's the same way here. God loves these people, but they need to hear it. They need to hear it. They don't need to cover up their ears or pretend like all is well, because it's not well. And they're going to, sadly, soon reap, like in Ezekiel chapter 22, it's all going to be turned back on their heads. It's all going to be turned back on their heads. You know, um, not very far down the road. So Hosea comes, and here's what, here's the word God brings. Hosea says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. Because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. That is a picture of a society that is collapsing. And why is why is Israel collapsing? Because Israel has forgotten God. Israel has abandoned God. They've gone their own way. They're happy to go offer up sacred raisin cakes to some pagan god or goddess or something. 
And when that happens, goodness just kind of flows out of the land. Mercy and grace and compassion flow out of the land because more and more people give into the darkness in their hearts and to, as at the end of the book of Judges, doing whatever seems right in their own eyes, whatever they pleases them. That's what, that's what happens. And um, I'm a pretty old guy now, and I don't think it's just my old age that causes me to see that increasingly happening even in our country here in 2023. Um, there is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They break all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up. Land dries up. They're talking in Israel where water is everything. Right? So the land drying up is a metaphor for, oh, it's just getting worse and worse. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. Sadly, a lot of people don't even realize they're wasting away. I remember reading a, lot, a while back now, a column by Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal talking about the water. If we think of our children as fish, this is an odd thought, as fish, the water we make them swim in, in our culture now. This poisonous water we make them swim in. As little kids, as elementary school kids, filled with, filled with things that children should not have to live with, be exposed to, much less, much less the grown-ups. Verse 3, because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it wastes away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea are swept away. But let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another. For your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. The pot calling the kettle black. That old saying from when I was a kid, right? The pot calling the kettle black. These these people are, they're descending so far that who can accuse another? It's it's like the old thing about you know when you when you're gonna point a finger at someone, you better realize three fingers are pointing back at you. Maybe something like that. Verse five: You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Knowledge of whom? Knowledge of what? My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Knowledge of God. Knowledge of themselves. Knowledge of why they're there. Knowledge of what this is all about. Knowledge of their own sinfulness, their own need for God's mercies and grace to be poured out on them rather than running to some non-existent figment of their imagination called Baal or Zeus, if we scooted forward in time, seven, you know, 700 years. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. 
it's why we Christians have always placed, along, along with Jews, have always placed a high emphasis on learning. Because there is so much to unlearn that's sort of poured into us by a world that doesn't know God. And there is so much to learn about who God is, who we are, where we are, what the problem is, um, and the great, you know, the great scientists of the past, I mean, they were all, they were all brought to where they are by, like Isaac Newton, okay? His, it worked because he was, he knew that God had created an orderly world. And, if he did the experiment once and then repeated it, he would get the same result. So scientific knowledge actually thrived within the Christian worldview. And somehow we've ended up at someplace else now, which I don't really understand how, how that came to be. But my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged the glorious God for something disgraceful. Even the priests get wrapped up in this. I can't help but think, think of 1 Samuel, in part because we're doing it on Tuesdays, but in 1 Samuel, when the book opens, you have Eli, the sort of the high priest, and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And it all illustrates how far downhill things have gone. And that is long before now. That's several hundred years before where we are here. You can put it in a modern day context if you think about, you know, pastors who, you know, let themselves be seduced by big barrels of money and jet airplanes. Verse 8. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. These are still the priests. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but they're not going to have enough. They will engage in prostitution, but not flourish. Because they have deserted Yahweh to give themselves over to prostitution. Old wine and new wine both take away their understanding. What does that mean? They're spending the whole day soused up is what that means. Do people use that word anymore, Patty? I don't think so. Probably not. I have all these old words I use. Wasted. How about <laughs> yeah. using wasted? Yeah. They spend the whole day wasted. My people consult a wooden idol. That should be like a... <laughs> Here's how this sounds to me. My, this is God. My people consult a wooden idol. What? How could this be? And a diviner's rod speaks to them? How could this be? How could they go this far wrong. 
A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. That that's prostitution thing is not just by going and hanging out with temple prostitutes. It's about chasing after other gods. And in our time, even though people don't go to altars of Baal, not most, there are plenty of gods that people embrace. They just don't think of them that way. You and I were talking about, on our trip even, how so many of the new shows that are coming out now have to do something with witchcraft. So many of them. And they're all the popular shows. They're all designed for younger people, but people who are looking for something else. Yes, and I could make an argument that that is because there is in us a desire for the spiritual, for the transcendent, for something outside ourselves, yes. something on the other side of the veil. Yes. And when it doesn't land where it should, it could land in all kinds of bad places Yes. and gets twisted up into, into something that ends up doing what? Taking us even further from God. So, Patty, I think I'll read on to 13 and then we'll stop. Okay, babe? Sounds great. A little break there. They sacrifice on the mountaintops. That's where the pagan altars are, right? Because what, what, what altars should they, where, where should they sacrifice? The temple in Jerusalem. But they divided themselves into these two kingdoms in a civil war. So even that option, they've managed to screw up. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. So, I'm going to go on a little bit. i got a minute. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution or your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery because the men themselves consort, consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. It's like God doesn't even know, can't even see who to... Everybody is messing up. <laughs> oh, man. Though you, Israel, commit adultery... Do not let Judah become guilty. Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. They do a little bit better. They have the actual um, Solomon's temple there. Ark of the Covenant is there. It's a proper place. Um, but even they have their share of terrifying, terrible kings. So, I think you get the drift of chapter 4. So... I think so we'll think just that very last line we we just read of people without understanding will come to ruin. That goes back up to where it said in the very beginning of this, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Yes. Yeah, just kind of re Yes. touching on that. Yes. We are called to be people of understanding and a people of knowledge about who God is and who we are. We are come we are to come to know God. What does Paul say? Oh, goodness sakes. What does Paul say? In Romans 12, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will know 
the will of God so that we will know what is good and pleasing to God. What is good and pleasing in this world. What, so we would know what God would have us do. So, anyway. Okay, that's Hosea 4, or a good bit of it anyway. And we come back next week. We will pick up there. Um, and on we will go. We're not going to get bogged down in the long passages of accusation and judgment. Because like in, like in Isaiah, they do get repetitive. Do you want to mention one more time about tomorrow? Don't forget tomorrow night. Check in between 5 and 6. The meeting at 6 o'clock with the vote. Bring your cell phone. Members only. Very quick meeting. Quick meeting. Should be done by 6.30. I thought I was going to sneeze again. Sorry. Did you sneeze? I did sneeze one time. Okay. So, sorry, I didn't want to sneeze. <laughs> Um, alrighty, so okay. we just plowed through today. Yeah, well, you know, Hosea is kind of like Isaiah. I mean, you could, these long passages of accusation, judgment, we need to hear them, but it doesn't mean I have to dwell on them. Right. Right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Alrighty, let's uh, close in prayer then. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you, God, for this beautiful day that we have today. We thank you, God, for this time that we get together to put this on our calendars to meet and to study your word every week, Lord. We pray for all of those that are gathered with us today, Lord. I pray for Diana. saw that it was her last treatment today. We're praying for Jan Brooks, who is having surgery on Wednesday. Please keep her in your prayer. Um, I'm not sure of anybody else's prayers right now, but I just pray that the Holy Spirit would lift any joys and concerns up to the Father right now. I pray, God, that you would be with us as we go forth in this day. Hold us close, Lord. We pray, God, that you would try to keep us safe and healthy, and we pray, God, for your wisdom, for your wisdom, not our own, and your discernment in our lives. Thank you, Lord. We lift all of this up today in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Bye, guys. Okay. Thank you, Patty. See Adios, you everybody. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow night, if you remember. And Wednesday for Ashes. Ashes. Yes. And for Samuel tomorrow. Oh, just what a busy time. Oh, my prime. God. It's so busy. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Love y'all. Bye-bye.